1: Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to Poland Is Not Yet Lost, episode A, Creating a Commonwealth, part 1. That convoluted title must mean that you'll be listening to a podcast project by Zach Twomley. And if you listen to the introduction episodes, you'll know what we're all about here at Poland Is Not Yet Lost. These lettered episodes, A, B, C and D, will give you a solid basis for the story to come. But they also come with the caveat that if you're not really interested in why Poland and Lithuania were in a Commonwealth, you don't care what that means, you don't want to know what Polish history looked like before 1700, and you couldn't care less about the nobility or their privileges, then that's perfectly fine. You're well within your rights to skip these foundational episodes and start on episode 1 instead. I won't hold your hand, but what I will say is that a number of the themes, issues and debates which we raise in these preparatory episodes will be repeated in the proper numbered episodes. I will of course remind you guys where those issues came from when we encounter them again in our story, but if you want to know their origins, then these episodes will set you up very nicely indeed. So, what is on the box today? Well, we're not going to delve into the mists of history to examine where Poland came from as a concept, since as we surely already know, Trevor Gilbert and his History of Poland podcast has that task down to a T, so make sure you check that out if you want to go to the very beginning of this story. Instead, here and in the next two episodes, we're going to establish how the strange relationship of Union and then full-blown Commonwealth, whatever that is, between Poland and Lithuania came to take place. For over 400 years, for better or for worse, Poland and Lithuania were joined at the hip, and in this episode our first task is to explain why will then bring the narrative up a few decades and prepare the way for the next episode. To clarify, our Foundation episodes aim to chronologically tell Poland's story, and in section A, we bring the story up to the point where the Jagiellonian dynasty died out, and in 1569, a personal union of Poland-Lithuania was transformed into the Commonwealth. Section B, titled The Story So Far, is then tasked with explaining in three additional episodes why the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth went from feeling rather good about itself in 1569 to resembling a battered shell of its former self by 1698. Section C then takes three more episodes to look at the nobility of the Commonwealth in more detail, the role they had, why they had such important positions, and what this meant for the Commonwealth, etc., Section D is important too, but it only takes a single episode looking exclusively at that bugbear of Polish reformers and a concept we'll become very familiar with in time, the Liberum veto. With this structure explained, hopefully you've got a better grasp of what we're planning to do here at Poland Is Not Yet Lost. But back to this episode, and it's time to take our narrative to 1385, where a very special marriage was about to take place. If you're ready for this first real episode of Poland is not yet lost, That I'm so happy to have you with me. And any non-patrons that are joining us right now, I hope you decide to stick around when the dust settles and we sink our teeth into this properly in two weeks' time. Lithuania was Europe's last pagan nation whereas Poland was the Catholic frontier of the continent, bathed in the holy light and victory of the Virgin Mary. There had seldom been two more different bedfellows in the history of political unions, but behind these differences, one could also find a surprising degree of commonality. Both Poland and Lithuania, of course, cared for their security. Both were irritated and occasionally threatened by the ambitious Teutonic Knights along the Baltic coasts. Both had grand ambitions for the expansion of their state. Both boasted a strong noble class, mindful of its rights and importance to the crown. Something else which Poland and Lithuania had in common was their propensity to make war against each other. Several times over the preceding centuries, Lithuanian raiders had carried off Poles into slavery. Polish frontiersmen had cooperated with German missionaries to plant Christian colonies in Lithuanian territory. For centuries, only Lithuania had resisted this Christianizing tide. Finns, Prussians, Letts, Estonians, and before them Saxons and Jutes, had all been converted by the proselytizing and war-making of the Europeans. Not only had they resisted the missionaries, Lithuania had also taken advantage of the retreat of Mongol power and the vacuum it left behind to accumulate a vast empire for its Grand Duke. Lithuania as we know it today represents barely a fraction of the size of Lithuania in the twilight years of the medieval era. A huge state, Lithuania stretched from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea and over territory now owned by Russia, Belarus and Ukraine among others. Its representatives were active in foreign courts and its size and the prowess of its military elite were renowned. Lithuanian power expanded and kept expanding right even after it was Christianized and joined to its Polish neighbor, with the result that these incredible conquests were then tacked onto the Commonwealth, which was incepted in 1569. In 1362, at the Battle of the Blue Water, Lithuania broke the power of the Mongols for good, and over the next 50 years, they captured Kiev, Polotsk and Smolensk. The lands of the Grand Duke were ruled from the ancient capital of Vilnius, and Lithuanian society was dominated by a pagan warrior elite who were willing to lay down their lives for their prince. In spite of his pagan foundations, much of the Grand Duke's conquered subjects in the Balkans, Belarus, and Ukraine were Orthodox Christians, and they were held under his yoke purely by the power and might of his armies. Much like all empires founded on conquest, Lithuania was not built on very solid ground. It was perhaps only a determined rebellion or terrible military defeat away from contracting and crumbling and one power which had the greatest potential to inflict this kind of defeat was Poland with its stable government, authentic regal institutions and of course its Catholic Church which linked it securely to Rome and the West. Perhaps Lithuania wasn't merely a defeat but a crusade away from disintegrating. Perhaps Poland would launch this crusade soon, since it was after all ruled by Louis of Anjou, one of the greatest Angevin kings, who also ruled over Croatia and Hungary in addition to his Polish patrimony. Perhaps, amused the 26-year-old Grand Duke of Lithuania, the best way to neutralise this threat wasn't through war, but through marriage. Powerful though he was, Louis of Anjou was an old man and would soon need replacing Louis' sole heir heir was the 11-year-old girl, Jadwiga. What if, in return for bowing to the inevitable and pledging to convert his pagan realm, the 26-year-old Grand Duke presented himself as the husband of that child? What if, to sweeten the deal still further, he would offer to bind Lithuania to Poland in a permanent personal union, one not just bound only by their marriage or for their lifetimes? the terms proved interesting and immensely appealing to the polish barons and in february 1386 following as much courtship as a 26-year-old could engage with an 11-year-old the grand duke jogaio would henceforth be known as jagiełło in case you were unaware the experience was a miserable one for the childhood princess who had been crowned queen of poland in her own right on the 15th of october 1384 Since her birth, Jadwiga had been pledged to marry a Habsburg, a Habsburg union with the daughter of an Angevin king, would surely produce ample fruit. And for a time, this outcome had pleased Poland's nobility, but now they changed their mind. After several years under the reign of Louis the Great, they liked the idea of a foreign king, one who could guarantee their privileges, and who would not be in a position to rule over Poland with an iron fist. Already, the outlines of Polish favour for foreign monarchs were making themselves known. Jadwiga was a passenger to these negotiations, and was to a large extent a prisoner in an alien land. Unsurprisingly, in later life, she favoured the poor, and despised those same barons who had forced her hand time and again as a child. After several months of prayer and no doubt begging her guardians not to hand her over to that disgusting pagan bachelor, Jadwiga gave in and did her duty. On the 15th of February 1386, the last pagan duke of Lithuania was baptised, christened as Vladislav, and henceforth known as Vladislav Jagiello. Three days later, the two were married, and by March the joint coronation was performed, and Poland-Lithuania had its king and queen. The Union of Krivo was also signed. This formalised the marriage treaty as one of alliance, cooperation and union. This marks the beginning of a new phase in the relationship between Poland and Lithuania. From this moment, two countries with profoundly different histories were now destined to spend the rest of their existences as independent states, bound together for better or worse. The marriage made on the 18th of February 1386 would lead Poland-Lithuania for nearly 200 years but the marriage between Jadwiga and Jagiello would not last 15 years. Jadwiga died in 1399, mourned by the peasantry and poor whom had grown to adore her for her charitable efforts. In later years, she would be depicted as a kind of national saintly figure who did her noble duty for Poland and who secured the country's future and union with Lithuania. To the Catholic Church, because Jadwiga's marriage guaranteed the conversion of the last pagan country in Europe, She was equally upheld as a virtuous woman, with few equals in the pantheon of Poland's history. With her death in 1399, though, King Wladyslaw Jagiello was free to rule on his own, and he did so for 30 years, solidifying the union between the two unlikely partners in the process. As Jagiello ruled, neither Lithuania nor Poland rested on their laurels, and both continued to expand their influence and powers to the east and southeast, cementing the power of the Union over Ukraine, and forging the largest state on the continent as they did so. Meanwhile, the Union turned its attention to the biggest thorn in each of their sides, the Teutonic Knights. For some time, the conversion of Lithuania had been the raison d'etre of the Teutonic Order, but the fact that Jagiello ruled a Christian country did not persuade these knights of the need to close up shop. They retained a strong foothold over Pomerania, effectively the Baltic coastline of northern Germany, where the Prussians had been converted from their pagan ways, the Slavs living there had been ejected, and the power of the order installed. Over the years, the Teutonic Knights had pushed up the Livonian coastline, along what we know today as the Baltic States, in the process, they had also blocked both Lithuania and Poland from acquiring any lasting access to the Baltic Sea, which obviously wrangled the leadership in both states quite considerably. Dealing with the Teutonic Knights was thus high on Jagiello's list of priorities, and this was accomplished in the Battle of Grunwald in 1410. At that battle, the power of the knights was broken, the Grand Master was killed, and the remnants of the knights retreated to Konigsberg in East Prussia. Later accounts or narratives of this battle would present it variably as a victory of Slav over German, which was to be avenged, or a victory of Polish knights against the Teutonic tyrants. The Nazis would present this racist narrative too, as with the German High Command in 1914, when the Battle of Tannenberg was recast as one of German against Slav, in revenge for Grunwald in 1410. In reality, the battle was one of great importance to the future of Poland-Lithuania, and for the moulding of the region into the States, which will later become East and West Prussia. The Teutonic Order was not in fact finished, and its powers had not been totally expended. There was always room for recruits on the continent, and the ranks of the Order refilled as time went by. By the middle of the 1400s, the knights were at it again, and fought a war against the Union for West Prussia, in a bid to reassert its influence. At this moment, the towns of Danzig, Thorn and Elbing revolted against any semblance of Teutonic rule and formed themselves into the Prussian League, asking shortly afterwards for the protection of Poland-Lithuania. This must have been music to the ears of King Casimir, also known as Casimir the Great, who absorbed Royal Prussia with the active incorporation of Royal Prussia in March 1454. The war which followed resulted in a Polish victory, and in 1466 the lands of the old Teutonic order were partitioned. West, or Royal Prussia, remained an integral part of Poland-Lithuania with its own diet and nobility, and East, or Ducal Prussia, remained under the rule of the Teutonic Knights, but these knights were now a vassal of the Polish king and would have to pay homage to him. Thus we should bear the date of the 19th of October 1466 in mind, since it was on this date that Poland-Lithuania was tied to Prussia, bonds which were loosened, only to strangle her by the time of the partition in 1795. It would have been impossible for this Polish king to imagine in 1466 that in the future his kingdom would be consumed by Brandenburg, Prussia, since this was a combination of a state which he owned, as in Prussia was, and a minor electoral patrimony owned by a weak prince of the Holy Roman Empire. In other words, that was what Brandenburg was. To take it further, the Archdukes of Austria were significant if minor potentates in the Europe of the 15th century, and Russia didn't even exist as a polity. In other words...
0: Ready to pop the question. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/host.
1: We can't blame Poland-Lithuania for linking its Prussian interests together and forging its path to the sea, but this did not stop some historians writing in the 18th and 19th centuries from doing so. Some, like Thomas Carlyle for instance, writing in the 19th century, would even express his condemnation and horror at the Polish partition of Prussia and equate it with the later partitions of Poland, claiming that Poland got her just reward in 1795 for starting that terrible method of cutting states into little bits in the first place. Of course, I shouldn't have to tell you that to agree to partition a state that didn't even really exist in Prussia, and the dogpiling on Poland in 1795, were two very different things. It is worth noting that by the middle of the 15th century, Poland-Lithuania was effectively free to carve a path on the continent, since this era of history was devoid of what we would recognise as great powers. Far to the east, the Golden Horde had spat out its successor states, while the principalities of the Rus in Pskov, Tver, Ryazan, Vyatka and Moscow were all vying for their own powers in a struggle for absolute supremacy. It was by no means certain who would come out on top. To the north, Scandinavia remained locked in its own struggles as Denmark led the Kalmar Union of Danes, Norwegians and Swedes, but not for long. The Kalmar Union was frequently seen to do battle with the Hanseatic League, and it rarely came out on top in this contest. The House of Luxembourg nicely offset the power of the House of Habsburg, in South-Central Europe, competing for the thrones of Hungary, Croatia, and Bosnia, etc. as they did so. 1453 had of course seen the fall of Constantinople to the Turk, but the Ottoman Empire was still consolidating its power a generation later, and would hit in the Balkans at any rate before it surged into the Ukraine, which appeared unlikely. Meanwhile, Spain had yet to exist, the New World was only a whisper of a rumour, and England and France remained at loggerheads even with the recent end of their Hundred Years' War. This brief rundown of the mid-15th century should demonstrate that the circumstances were ideal for a large, united, composite monarchy like Poland-Lithuania to flourish in a region where other powers could not reach. As it flourished, its nobility grew more and more fond of their privileges, And short of the kind of national threats to its existence, Poland-Lithuania had time to develop ideas about government, liberty, constitution, the rights of the citizen, and even a form of democracy with some caveats. It was certainly the most progressive state on the continent, and Polish writers benefited greatly from the flood of Italian ideas which were imported from the Renaissance. Thanks to the reverence held for Rome, such ideas were welcomed in Poland's cities, which began to burst with money, culture and learning. We will examine the nobility of Poland-Lithuania in more detail in Section C, but for now, it suffices to note that the model of elective monarchy, which was established in 1572, had its genesis in the creeping powers of the nobles and the influence which they enjoyed. Even while great kings were not hard to come by for Poland, Men like Casimir IV, who ruled from 1447 to 1492, or even Vladislav III, who was king of Poland, Hungary and Croatia before him. These two men, and many others, deferred to their nobles a surprising amount for the period, until it became the norm for a king in Poland-Lithuania to do so. These accommodations of the nobility, once they lasted long enough, became political traditions which could not be altered for fear of the nobles waving their silk handkerchiefs, complaining about their rights, and refusing to approve anything that the king wished to do. Again, the logical conclusion of this model of government was either constitutional monarchy or governmental paralysis, and in time, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth would experience a bit of both. If you're thinking to yourself that the transition into a union when the two states were so clearly different seems like a little too smooth to be true, then you're right. Legions and legions of disagreements and quarrels surfaced in the two centuries between Poland and Lithuania. Far too many for us to get into or really even mention. As time went by, though, these little spats compelled both sides to clarify their union in a bit more detail. Even for the sake of succession, where plague or conflict could snuff out an air in an instant, it was vital that measures were in place to plan for all contingencies. Agreements over Jagiello's extended family ruling over Lithuania as Grand Dukes, with Jagiello ruling Poland, endured for a time, with the understanding that Jagiello's immediate family and heirs would take precedence over, for instance, the once pagan king's brother or his cousin's descendants. This established a firm set of principles under which the dynastic stability of what was to become Jagiellian Poland could flourish. In 1413, to take the measures further, not merely the succession but also the nobility were effectively combined together to form one block of aristocrats, all with varying degrees of wealth, land and influence to their names. It was in a treaty laid down in that year that the nobilities in both states agreed to deal with matters as one if a given issue, such as making war, expanding borders or initiating trade deals for instance, popped up. The actual concept of consent and the will of the majority triumphing were upheld as important even at this early stage in the Union's history. What was more, incorporating the Lithuanian boyars into the Polish nobility made them more Polish, made them think according to the developing noble traditions of Poland, and Lithuanian boyars liked what they saw. Polish nobles possessed a greater say in their state than their Lithuanian counterparts had. And as the two nobilities grew closer together, eagerly encouraged to intermarry as the best way of achieving this, powerful new dynasties were created, some owning vast tracts of land, smaller only than that of the crown. There is no definitive beginning or ending point to when the Union's nobles became more aware of their importance to the functions of the state, but the demand in 1572 that the nobility would elect the king and that the crown of Poland was not hereditary any longer was an idea that had its genesis in these years. The monarchical principle was significantly diluted in Lithuania, after the Lithuanian nobles years of contact with their Polish peers, and the closer each group became to one another, the more the Lithuanian nobility found itself incorporating much of Poland's traditions as its own. As Norman Davies wrote, The Polish nobility were obtaining a permanent stake in the internal affairs of their partners. The Lithuanians were receiving a guarantee of the separate identity of their state and its ruler. No longer was the king or grand duke also the state. He would have to defer to and rely upon his nobles, and soon he couldn't even depend upon blood ties to see him through. The Act of Herodlo in 1413 was the name of that treaty which bound the two nobilities together, and signalled that this union was destined to be more than a mere agreement to last the duration of Jagiello's life. Lithuania and Poland were to be bound together until neither side wished it. This binding would not be dependent upon the man sitting on the throne or ruling the Grand Duchy. Making such arrangements was likely easier thanks to the good mood all were in following that aforementioned Battle of Grunwald, which had shattered the powers of the Teutonic Knights. It is likely that the joint effort displayed in that battle made everyone look to the future and imagine what could be accomplished. There was still much to be done, as the Teutonic knights had not ceased to exist, even if their powers had been broken, and the Pope still favoured them and suspected the recently converted Lithuanians with some justification. Nonetheless, despite the rivers of mutual interest which no doubt flowed between them, the extent of the agreement is remarkable, especially since it depended so much upon the integrity and sincerity of the nobility on both sides to succeed. Even the wording of the preamble of the Treaty of Herodlo is worth mentioning for the lofty language it makes use of. While other European states were busy battering each other into submission or ravaging one another's lands, these two nobilities here were expressing their union in terms of, of all things, love. As the preamble of this treaty says... Whoever is unsupported by the mystery of love shall not receive the grace of salvation, for by love laws are made, kingdoms governed, cities ordered, and the state of the commonwealth is brought to by common goal. Whoever shall cast love aside shall lose everything. In later times, in the depths of national despair, Lithuanian and Polish patriots alike would take heed from these words since the treaty of Herodlo was known to all nobles as the moment when their states became irreversibly intertwined. It is therefore accurate to begin to speak of Lithuanians as Polish, since to be Polish simply meant to be a citizen of the Polish-Lithuanian state. If that sounds a bit awkward, then consider this comparison. What other kingdom in history, you may be wondering, combined itself with another, in its royal house and nobility, to create another completely new entity? Surely there's no other state in history that followed this example of Poland-Lithuania in this way? Well, actually, yes, there is. In fact, there happens to be several, but the one we're going to focus on for the purpose of this exercise is that of Britain. Think about it. In Britain, you had Scotland, in this case taking the role of Lithuania, in this case taking the role of Poland. Initially, these two states were joined in a union. And this comparison is even more satisfying because it was the Scottish House of Stuart that initiated this union. Then, as if to further ape the example of Poland-Lithuania, with the succession never far from people's lips, in 1707 the Act of Union was proclaimed, which united Scotland and England into Britain, just like the Union of Lublin in 1569 united Poland-Lithuania into a Commonwealth. So Scotland and England got Great Britain, and Poland-Lithuania got Commonwealth. To speak of Scottish people as British in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, but a little less so now it seems, would have been totally acceptable and accurate. And yet, Scotland remained a recognised, distinct part of the British entity, just as surely as Lithuania was Polish, in the sense that it was part of the Commonwealth, but still retained its sense of national uniqueness and diversity. It is possible to take this comparison even further when we think back to the countless marriages between English and Scottish nobility which were arranged, as Scottish lords with thousands of barren, windswept acres in the highlands sauntered up to collect their cultured English bride. Had they been made fully aware of this example, the Poles would certainly have seen themselves in this role. They sent their daughters to marry the wealthy Lithuanian magnates, and their sons married wealthy daughters of Lithuanian nobles, Whose wealth could be tacked on to their own at this point in history, land was wealth, and we see a pooling of the landholdings of the major families and a pooling of interests as a result. Think of each marriage between Pole and Lithuanian as throwing a rope from one side to the other before long, all these marriages are resembled in several ropes which can be used as a bridge between the two nations to smooth over the cracks which may result in policy and further tighten the bonds as Relatives marry into and out of these limits. To all intents and purposes, Norman Davies asserts, they became one nation. Language, political traditions and religious persuasions could all be overcome as mere obstacles to money-making and increasing the standing of one's family, and those who orchestrated the increasingly closer union between Poland and Lithuania were right to target the nobility first and foremost in this quest. It is in many ways tragically appropriate that just as Poland and Lithuania were brought together by the nobility and made into a union, and that Commonwealth was made possible by the union of these two nobilities, it was also this same nobility which contributed so negatively to the eventual downfall of the Commonwealth. But here at this early stage in the Union's lifeline, all could see the benefits of pooling resources and interests together. It wasn't as though either Poland or Lithuania sat still while their states were being brought closer together. Both continued to expand and increase their powers individually in the wild eastern lands, bringing the territory to the Black Sea and the Baltic, and providing ample opportunities for nobles to expand their land grants. So long as the actual dignity, identity and interests of Poland and Lithuania were not discarded or disrespected, the Union proceeded with a great deal of calm and considerate progress. Most of the time. So, in the next episode, we'll resume our story of Poland Lithuania as it moves through the centuries and its nobility takes more and more powers from the king. By the end, with so much power and influence reserved for themselves and enshrined in their rights, there was only one thing left for the nobles to do. Now that they had such a wealth of control and power over the king, it was only natural that the question of king making should come up, and its task should fall to the nobles who made the king so powerful in the first place. All they needed was the opportunity to stake this claim, and it would come with the extinction of Jagiello's descendants 200 years after his dynasty had first been established. So now you know what Poland-Lithuania was and how it came to join hands, so I hope you'll join me next time to see the logical conclusion of this story play out, not in Union, but in Commonwealth. Until then though, history friends and patrons, My name is Zach, and this has been the first episode of Poland Is Not Yet Lost, Section A, Creating a Commonwealth, Part 1. It's quite the title, but we've got quite the project in store for you guys into the future. So if this episode tickled your fancy, make sure you head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up for a fiver a month now to get the rest of this project delivered straight to you every single fortnight. For those patrons already paying up and listening in, thanks so much for your support. It means so much to me, and it means that we can make history thrive as I continue to release this show and start the History PhD. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.